Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Mesh Tsunami podcast. Today, we're offering five conversations from episode 49, our wrap-up of the Liver Meeting 2023, plus from the vault, Laurent Costera's contribution to our Liver Meeting 2022 wrap-up. This conversation covers a few topics. It starts with me commenting that regulators are likely to approve NITs in place of biopsy only if a small battery of tests, or ideally a single test, prove valuable in assessing all agents, or at least all agents for a stage of disease or segment of market. Scott notes his frustration that biopsy is an expensive and poorly graded measure. Hopes the FDA will move past semi-qualitative biopsy, at least as far as AI goes. I agree. I then ask Scott what we've learned about basic science in the meeting. He discusses advances in the use of single-cell technologies as pivotal in helping us better understand underlying disease. And goes on to mention several presentations on senescent cells that provided insight, but he felt a little advanced in basic drug development. I turned to Louise Campbell and asked her what the meeting she found most interesting. She points to a poster looking at liver stiffness and controlled attenuation parameter, or CAP, in patients after transplantation. Louise describes this as the first time she's seen CAP used as an independent predictor. She then mentions a second poster on methotrexate using BCTE as having similar promise, and goes on to discuss a third, very different poster on the evolving impact of allied providers in hepatology, where the agents project a roughly one-third growth in patients requiring treatment by 2023, coupled with a roughly one-third decline in the number of hepatologists available to treat. Allied providers in this specialty show a similar decline. Louise believes this study points up that national health systems need to boost allied providers quickly if we are to provide care in all the areas related to hepatology that will need it. As the conversation winds down, Louise and I discuss and agree on a different topic, the high level of patient presence and energy suffusing the entire meeting. As I said in the introduction to this episode, one hour cannot do this conference justice, but this particular conversation hits highlights of one or two of the key issues in MASLD or NAPLD presented today. So just sit back, listen, learn, feel, and when you're done, join the dialogue in our LinkedIn discussion group. Today's episode of Surfing the Mash Tsunami, reviewing the highlights of TLM 2023, has been sponsored by Madrigal Pharmaceuticals. Madrigal Pharmaceuticals is a clinical-stage biopharmaceutical company pursuing novel therapeutics for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, NASH, a liver disease with high unmet medical need. Madrigal's lead candidate, Resmeterum, is a liver-directed THR-beta agonist oral therapy that is designed to target key underlying causes of NASH. For more information, visit www.madrigalpharma.com. I want to go back for a sec to, to Scott's previous question and your answer, which is, you know, the, the whole goal, one, one of the goals of NITs, ideally, is to get the FDA and EMA away from biopsy. But it, if we're going to need a cluster of NITs, and if that cluster might vary from um, drug to drug candidate, depending on the mode of action, that's a lot to ask a regulatory agency to swallow. And I fear it might make it harder for us to get to that place. There was a session on um, Friday afternoon, late uh, session on NITs, where Michelle Long from Nova Nordisk actually asked that question. You know, if I'm doing drug development, what am I, I'm trying to figure out how to get an, get it approved as an NIT, what am I supposed to do? And I think the, the, the group agreed that there was no one, no one NIT that would solve that problem. But I would think if you're a drug developer, particularly at a point in time where the agency is still relying on biopsy, that makes it a little hard to figure out what, what paths to take. Well, the FDA hasn't shown a lot of flexibility 
ability to move outside of biopsy, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I agree. I would think this is one of the reasons why, though. I mean, if, if you think rule and run medicine is do, is do no harm, rule one in federal agencies is basically never get your face in the newspaper for something that went wrong. <laughs> so the easiest way to do that is don't do very much, right? or don't do very much that's truly different. What you do that's different has to be simple so that it's defensible. I fear that to, to get to NITs, we're going to need some kind of a solution where we can say, either for every drug that's being evaluated, use these two or three things, or for drugs that claim to be primarily antifibrotic, do this, or drugs to be primarily defatting, do that. But it, I, I emerged from Boston with a sense it might be more challenging than I felt it was when I got there. Scott Friedman. You know, Laurent is the expert, not me. I'm, I'm just uh, frustrated maybe because the technologies have not advanced as quickly as the therapies, maybe because, you know, this is really the biggest unmet need in accelerating trials, in my opinion. It's not lack of targets. It's a skittishness on the part of companies to invest in uh, long trials that require liver biopsy, which, by the way, is still being graded in the most primitive way imaginable by zero to four, as opposed to digital pathology, which I think is unacceptable. See, I don't know. I don't get why they don't do that one immediately. Well, the FDA, at least when I've heard them speak about it, say they're very open to it. Just it's your job, academics and clinical research investigators. It's your job to show us the data. And there is data now that features of fibrosis on the digital biopsy are more sensitive in detecting improvement and more robust in predicting outcomes. So I'm not sure what else they need. I'm certainly not the one to ask. Laurent, do you have any familiarity with the answer to that question? What you think the regulators will need to actually move along the path on this? Laurent Castera. <laughs> no, I don't. So Scott, now let me turn to you. Basic science. What did we learn? What did we see in science at that meeting that was helpful or innovative or different? Well, I concentrate mostly on the inflammation fibrosis. And I would say that the progress was was heartening, but incremental. There were no big breakthroughs, but a lot more use of single cell technologies that are giving us much more refined and granular understanding of pathogenesis, in particular, the heterogeneity of fibrogenic cells in liver. Uh, there's still a big uh, lacune in our understanding of fibrosis degradation, although I know what well, we and other groups now are tackling this for the first time in 20 or 25 years. So I would say nothing that, you know, for a more general audience, they should celebrate except to say that there is quite a bit of progress because the technologies are advancing our ability to appear into the pathogenic mechanisms with much greater clarity. Some of the most interesting stuff I saw on this subject were just private presentations, not even things that were in the meeting with people showing me work they were doing. I guess taking a look at the impact on brain of diabetes, really, and obesity, but MASH relatedly. I don't recall seeing a lot of basic science that I, I don't understand everything I see. I mean, I went to a couple of the basic sessions, including the fibrosis session. You know, there's actually a couple of presentations on the senescence of stellate cells as being a target, how they create a... So senescence is a state of cells where they're more advanced and they are effectively aging uh, and coming close to their lifespan. And in doing so, they become very inflammatory, fibrogenic. And so there's a push to try to get rid of senescent cells or a couple of very interesting papers, one which reinforces data that was published some time ago that the more senescent stellate cells you have, the more permissive your environment, microenvironment for cancer development. So that was, uh, I would say, reassuring. There was another that tried to treat senescence using uh, targeted what are called senile 
analytics to kill senescent cells, and that also looked promising. But those drugs have been around for a long time and somehow haven't advanced yet. So I didn't see anything that was super ripe for drug development or translation, but uh, certainly lots of studies across the meeting about the role of genetics, the role of diet, the role of different polymorphisms, really genetics. So, I, you know, it's all adding up. It's It just hasn't kind of crystallized into a single coherent picture of where the disease starts, what makes it better, what makes it worse, and what are the kind of Achilles heels of the disease from a therapeutic perspective. Because it seems that a lot of the trials are moving the needle on different aspects of NASH, but in the end, they don't really improve the disease. They may improve the fat, they may improve the inflammation, but we don't know if that's really getting to the heart of why this disease occurs at all and why it's shown up in the last 25 or 30 years. So you're the person who taught me that how it progresses and how it regresses may be two different things. Yes, I think that's you know as true as it's ever been. And there may even be genetic determinants as there are for who progresses. There may be different genetic determinants for who's prone to regression when the disease uh, activity goes down. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So, Louise, with that, let's go over to some of the things that you were looking at in the meeting, even if it took you a day or two to look at them. Louise Campbell. In the in context of this session, there were a couple of interesting posters, particularly on FibroScan. And one that I found particularly interesting was the vibration control transient elastography-based parameter predicts clinical outcomes in liver transplant recipients. Because, of course, it's uh, proved now for post-transplant patients. But what they did was they also used the CAP in this poster, and it was done by Alok Baral and the team from the Virginia Commonwealth University Health System at Richmond VA. So they basically looked at the liver stiffness and surrogate markers of hepatic fibrosis and with FibroScan, obviously. And what they did was they ruled in everybody who'd had a, a liver transplant uh, successful between 2015 and 22. They excluded end-stage liver disease and damage acute rejection. And what they looked at was FibroScans over 15.5 as clinical fibrosis or significant fibrosis, to be fair. And a cap they used of 270. The data wasn't overly surprising in that liver stiffness predicted the outcome and mortality post-liver transplant. But what they did do is then subdivide that by looking at the controlled attenuation parameter, and that predict the risk of future myocardial infarction in some of these liver transplant patients. But what was particularly interesting was what they didn't comment on was the mortality curves in those patients with and without or above and below 270. They died early earlier than the patients who then went on to get MIs with CAP. So it's it's quite an interesting diagram. The, the death rate starts at around about 20 months following transplantation if the CAP was just taken on its own at a level of 270. And whereas in the other categories, mortality didn't start to show until sort of 40, 36 to 40 months. So it's the first time I've seen CAP used as its own parameter to sort of look at predicting mortality. And we've had CAP available now for a number of years. It'd be nice to see that second part utilised a lot more in the evidence that we're seeing, not just stiffness. There was another poster doing methotrexate. And because we now have surrogate markers like VTCE and that, we can monitor serially these patients. So over a number of years, they've gone on to sort of support the evidence that methotrexate doesn't cause more fibrosis. And there's been a couple of evidence-based papers out recently that have done that. So it was now looking at, we've got enough data on long cohorts, even of small numbers, to look at with some of these surrogate markers now. Those were sort of interesting because they're applicable to practice 
now. The one thing that I was really keen to see part of was we talk about getting the implementation of the medications out. There was a very good session on evolving impact of hepatology associates, obviously close to my heart being uh, an advanced practitioner, in the context that we're looking at a 34% rise in hepatology need in the US. Obviously, it's AASLD by 2023. So we're now into that 10-year period, but we're going to look at a 34%, 35% reduction in the amount of hepatologists available. And although allied health professionals will increase during that time, we're still looking at a deficit of 30% in allied health just in hepatology. And it's more or less split 80% gastro, 20% hepatology. But we are not going, unless we start to look at way we get strategies out to deliver these new medications like Resmeterone and anything coming in the future, we're going to be really, really struggling to deliver expert care in locations that count to patients. And the more rural you are in any country, the less your survival rates are, the less access you get to care. So it's about being able to use the diagnostics that the guys have commented on so nicely out in better environments. And how do we do that? How do we implement it when we know that we're going to need, we've got a shortfall, but allied health is going to be our area of strength. But it's not an area that I see targeted for education at the moment. We've got patient advocacy, we've got clinician advocacy, we just need a bit more allied health advocacy. So there's some really, really nice sessions. And you commented on the beginning of the patient strength that this conference was very, very key. Unfortunately, you can't see a lot of those sessions. They were Zoom or in real time. But one of the comments that struck me was at the patient advocate and the very first session of Stronger Together. And they were talking about lived experience and the fact that lived experience of patients is basically data with a soul. And I thought that was such a great term. It was. It, it is their experience and how they do it. Data with a soul. So that's new category. That's interesting. To tail into the NITs. And um, I didn't attend any of the basic science. Shocking. You lied. If you were actually in the room for the patient sessions, patient track sessions, tremendous energy. I mean, those folks really felt like they were at the table or a, a significant presence in the event as compared to merely window dressing. And that's usually important. Look, we're not going to be able to do this about advocates, right? In in that regard, I'm going to tiptoe slowly for a minute or two into nomenclature. Yes, but I think the patients, because it opened the conference with that much more empowered, the patient sessions were the leading part of the conference. So I felt the enthusiasm in the room being virtual, and I think it was some of the sessions came off really well. And I think Sue Wang, who took that first Stronger Together session, 150 patients and patient advocates and caregivers were in that room. 7,000 people were attending the meeting. 20% was virtual. Over two thousand abstracts the patients were front and center as you, you quite rightly said and the sort of message that sends is powerful today's episode of surfing the mash tsunami reviewing the highlights of tlm 2023 is sponsored by madrigal pharmaceuticals madrigal pharmaceuticals is a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company pursuing novel therapeutics for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis nash a liver disease with high unmet medical need madrigal's lead candidate resmeterum is a liver-directed THR-beta agonist oral therapy that is designed to target key underlying causes of NASH. For more information, visit www.madrigalpharma.com. And now, back to Roger. 
We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with a topic still to be determined. Until then, stay safe. Surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.